welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. And we're live. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project podcast. Mm-hmm. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very, very special guest, Professor Quiniquia Day. Uh, welcome, Professor Day. Oh, thank you oh, for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> awesome. Uh, for those who uh, aren't familiar with you, could you just give a little bit of background? Oh, yes. Um, I teach at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. I teach in Old Testament. I teach Hebrew, uh, Exodus, anything in the Old Testament. I also have three master's degrees, one in uh, social work, uh, divinity, and theology. And I have a bachelor's of economics, and I'm about to defend my PhD thesis in a couple of months. Awesome. Well, I know that's, that's <laughs> a lot of work. So I... <laughs> I'm a mom. That's, that's the hardest part. I'm a mom. <laughs> How many pages is your dissertation? How many pages did mm-hmm. you say? Mm-hmm. 300. Wow. So oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yes. Well, uh, that sounds intense. Yes. Yes. <laughs> What's it? I'm, I'm excited to have you on. I know uh, Vince talks a lot about you and uh, he was like, you got you to gotta get Professor Day on. So I'm excited to, to be That's able to so have so today we want to talk about the Old Testament, its reliability, mm. and also what it has to say about women, uh, mm. which is always uh, hot topics. Um, mm. when, when, when people question you about the reliability of the Old Testament um, and our, our ability to trust it, what are kind of some of the responses that you give them or how do you frame your answer? Yeah, you know, I think people are always... Yeah, I think people are always uh, who is God? So it's really a faith walk. It's really trying to give people concrete reasons, like concrete rationale. So we look to the Word of God, and we look and we compare it to other religions as well. We can look at how the Christian faith really speaks of redemption. How the Christian faith speaks of us walking with God, as a Christian faith that a God would die for His people. Those sorts of things. So we look at the mercy and the love of God. So that's the first thing I want to frame for people because I think what's underneath that is how can I trust God? How do I know that this is the true and living God? Next, I would go to how scriptures are transmitted. It's an oral tradition. Of course, people begin to then question if it's an oral tradition and then texts start to get written. Is there an error? Is there some sort of scribal slip? How can we trust this? And I would say, well, we always have to examine it through the eyes of the Holy Spirit. We have to ask God. And so people say, well, I don't believe in God. Well, we say, well, we have to kind of go by our instinct at that point. Like, is, is this something that I believe could actually happen? And usually people say no. And I say, okay, well, that's good because now it takes some faith. Now let's look at the other parts of the scripture and how it's developed. And let's see if there's some cohesiveness to it. Is your story, one story being told throughout the whole narrative? And I think with the Christian faith, you can see from Genesis to Revelation, that there is a string of a narrative of redemption that carries out, that connects it, which differs from um, the Islamic faith. My dad is, well, my dad passed away, but my dad was Muslim. And so when I looked at his Quran, it seemed to have very, very sort of segmented pieces, not always connected in my eyes, but he may differ in his opinion. But sort of looking at the connection, is there a common theme that we can see 
over thousands of years. And I think that also sort of built a case for accepting the word of God as the true word of God. But beyond that, you have to live it. So I always tell people, give it a chance. And if it works, it works. You have to experience God because even people who say they love God, who are Christians, they're not really sure if they're really Christians. They can be easily wavered because they're not experiencing God. So if it's the true living word of God, you should be experiencing it and it should reveal itself to you as a true and worthy thing to follow. That's good. That's good. When it comes to specific passages throughout mm. the Old Testament, what are when we get into the weeds of passages we say might be problematic as regards to reliability or seeming there's some number errors or mm. how do we how do we navigate those? Oh, number errors are, are to be expected, actually, in the Old Testament. I mean, numbers, you can have uh, scribal slips, you know, all the time. So you, you have, there's two ways that numbers have been looked at. One as uh, literal, so th- third, uh, 40 days and 40 nights. Is that literal? Um, or three days and three nights. Is that literal? So sometimes it's literal. Sometimes it's very abstract. It's, it's just a long period of time. So when Moses says to, the Israel, uh, says to Pharaoh that I want to take the Israelites on a three-day journey. Does that mean that he wants to go on literally a three-day journey and return back? No. In the ancient Near Eastern context, what that means is we plan on going and we're not giving you a time when we will return. So we have to look at numbers within the the cultural context to get an idea of what it is. And then there could be scribal uh, slips. If we look at King Jehoiachin's reign in the King James Version, it says that he began his reign at 18. And in the NIV, it says he began his reign at the age of eight. So you have, you have 8 and 18. So there's a difference there. So how do you sort of reconcile that? Well, that requires us to look at the Hebrew text and to look at the ancient Near Eastern transmissions of how the text came about and give a rationale as to what's going on. So we may find some errors, some scribal slips in the King James because it's based on an inferior Greek. That's why we look at the Hebrew. That's why I tell my students it's so important to look at the Hebrew text because you'll have all the variants, and you can compare the text and come to a, a rational answer. If you just look at the English, you will see things that don't match up, mm-hmm. especially think- numbers. Numbers is, that's an, that's an you know, and, and God says to Abraham, you know, you're going to be, um, you're, you're, you're going to, your people are going to be uh, slaves for 400 years. And then we see 430 years. And then we see 480 years. We say, well, how many years is it, Lord? 400, 430, 480. It's just the fourth century. So as long as it's in the 400th, you're fine. So Mm -hmm. it's how you look at the numbers, literal or abstract. Mm. That's helpful because people will use those numbers and those kinds of seeming to be discrepancies as a way to discredit the scriptures being inerrant. They say, well, if this is God-breathed, God-inspired, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient, how can Mm -hmm. we trust it if there are scribal errors? Yeah, well, that's why it's important to know, I say, get to know the original language, and then you can sort of test it out for yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's helpful. For those who, um, we usually save resources for the end, but for those, but I think this is important when we talk about original languages, for those who are just, you know, saying, man, I can't learn Hebrew, but I really want to go more in depth or, you know, at least get some tools to help me. Right. Now these uh, complex things so I can wrestle myself if I'm not able to learn Hebrew, what, what would you recommend? Um, I would recommend a keyword study Bible in conjunction with an Englishman's Hebrew concordance 
in an Englishman's Greek concordance. And probably a, um, I might have to send a person a handout or two, but you could carefully do a word study with those resources without having any experience with Hebrew or Greek. So it's getting the right resources and the right tools and being careful with the text, not being in such a hurry to say, oh, I know this, oh, I know that, um, but really being careful with the text. One of our ministers at our church was recently teaching Sunday school, and he said, Caleb means dog. He says, and he was sort of giving, giving the analogy of that we should have a dog fighting sort of spirit about us, that we should wrestle for what belongs to us. And he, he, he doesn't know any Hebrew and he doesn't know any Greek. So the question was, what does it really mean? He says, I think this is what it means. Well, we looked it up in the Keyword Study Bible, and can it be translated as dog? Yes. Is the steps that he brings afterwards, the sort of the, the, how he was relating it to us, um, is that appropriate? Some may say yes, some may say no, but is he correct in the translation? Yes, he is. Mm-hmm. It's that, that application of, of, of the translation that gets sticky. Yes, uh-huh. always, always, always. <laughs> One of my professors said more heresy is done in application than in translation. Oh, yes, because people then, when it comes to application, people want to fit the text into their life mm-hmm. rather than letting the text guide their life. Mm-hmm. So true, so true. So uh, this is where it gets controversial, and I'm sure you've heard this a lot, uh, women in the Old Testament. Uh, we just did an episode about what, the, the Old Testament, New Testament had this to say about slavery, uh, but this also is uh, a hot topic as is the Old Testament oppressive to mm. women um, because we it was more of a patriarch patriarchal patri I'm trying to get the word out. Uh, <laughs> I got it. I got it. And uh, that's you know in 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 that portion uh, it it seems complex to the people. Mm. Uh, who are who are wrestling with that, especially women who read the text. Yes, I remember when I first opened up the Bible and did not know, know God. Are you still there? Okay, I remember when I sort of first opened the text and did not know God, and I was really sort of trying to figure it all out. Like, this doesn't seem very women-friendly. But as we begin to really look at the text, we in learning some of the Hebrew, there are several things we can see how much God loves women, and I don't think it's oppressive at all. If we look at the word ezer, so when God creates woman, he says that he's made woman a helper to man. And the Hebrew word there is ezer. And um, this ayin zayin resh. And that word really means a person that, that's sort of translated as a person who's helping in distressing situations. That's an attribute that God uses to describe himself, that he is man's helper. And if we look at ezer used throughout the Old Testament, this is used to, uh, when a person is in great distress, when there's war. So we look at when, when women is created, she's created to be a helper. That doesn't mean that she's just, or some people just have this idea of women cooking clean, that sort of thing. But uh, that does not mean that that's her role. What it means is her role is supposed to provide life-changing, um, critical assistance to man. That is not always preached. So looking at what does God describe the woman as and as there. And then we can also look at other portions of the text. When David sins with Bathsheba, and it's a great sin, you know, he takes her husband and makes sure, makes sure her husband gets killed. He has a child with her, da, da, da. But the, at the conclusion of the narrative, the scripture says that the matter grieved God. And so we see that God was grieved by the injustice done to Bathsheba. 
And then we look at the concubine in the book of Leviticus, where God gives the rights to the concubine who's not being treated fairly. She has the right to leave her spouse. Now, the concubine is probably a little lesser than a woman, but if she's not being treated right, she can leave. And you say, and, and then in the book of Exodus, the women are serving at the tent. I think it's in Exodus, oh, Exodus uh, 38, 8, yes. They're serving at the, uh, the entrance of the tent. Again, these, you have these sort of instances where women are being used mightily, but we don't hear that talked about. And then even in the book of, um, I think it's Nehemiah, when they're building the wall, there are women at the wall who are building. Why is that critical? Well, women had to be, they also had to be able to fight. Remember, there's a, an attack that's coming against uh, the, the Israelites as they rebuild the wall. So Nehemiah says, we need someone to have a weapon in a hand and build. So you have women on the wall who are able to build. You have the concubine who's allowed to leave her spouse if he's not treating her right. You have, in the book of Exodus, women who are serving at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And you have, when God creates women, that she, he says that she's created as an Azair. So I think what happens when it comes to women, that because we say it's a male-written text rather than a God-inspired text, which is different, that we sort of come to the text already biased, already expecting not to see much. But if we read the text carefully, we will see a whole lot that God's saying about women and how he feels about them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think that because some, some, some uh, people say the scripture gives men the right to treat women as second-class citizens and they don't have men, as many rights as men um, mm-hmm. throughout the Old Testament as far as receiving inheritance and property and, and, and things of that nature. They're kind of at the mercy of their father or their husband. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we reconcile those? Yeah, I'm going to instruct people to read the story in the book of Numbers with the daughters of Zelophehad. So this situation comes up where there, I think, is, I think it's four or five daughters. I can't recall the number of how many daughters. But they bring their case to Moses. Um, well, they bring the case to the elders, and the elders don't know what to do. So they bring the case is presented to Moses. They don't have uh, any, uh, they, their father dies in the wilderness, and they don't have any brothers, and they're not married. But they say, why should our name our father's name, just go and go to waste basically because we're not married. And they ask for an inheritance. And so the issue is significant and difficult enough that the elders have to bring this to Moses because the issue gets before Moses. So since it's before Moses and we know how the law system was set up, the easy cases went to the, or the manageable ones went to the, to the elders. And then the difficult ones went to Moses. But even Moses doesn't know what to do. He goes to God. And out of God's mouth, he says that the women are right. And this is concerning inheritance laws. Um, so he says, if the women should have their, the land, and so what that says, that says to us this, that they don't have to be married to receive land. There does not have to be a cousin or a brother or a redeemer. If the, if the father has only daughters, she can inherit. But what happens later is culturally, the Israelites go back to a situation where they're not allowing the women to have the land. But that law had already changed. It's just not enforced throughout the Old Testament. So I think if we look carefully at the text, we'll see that women had the right, but somehow along the way that it was taken from them. But God wanted them to be able to inherit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's, just, you know, I always say to my students, that's just like radical. You know, it's like God's like, yeah, the, when he says, you know, the women are right. Like, yeah, we're right. You know why? And so some people would argue differently. You know, there's, there's, there's no shortage of literature from our Jewish brothers 
who argue that this text is, um, what the Doris Zalofa had, is uh, erroneous and it's inserted into the text and it's, it's not valid because they cannot view the fact that a woman, more than one woman, like four or five women who are able to get married are not married. Why aren't they married? So that's the issue. Why aren't they married? They said, and that they would come and they would present their case. So they say, why? What boldness? How can they do that? So they have, they poke holes with the story, but we see enough issues, areas in the Bible where women are standing up. We even see this with Elijah's story where the, uh, we, she's coming to get her land and um, Elijah's servant is already there telling, telling the king, you know, that, oh, this is the woman where her son was raised from the dead. So we see these situations where women are bold, but they sort of dismiss the story. But women can inherit. And I think that's crucial even for practical application today when um, many women in the church are struggling to figure out what their role is or what they can do. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, I get a ton of messages from women saying, wow, this what you leading you leading this organization is inspiring me to study more in depth mm -hmm. of in theology and apologetics. And, you know, I'm thinking about seminary. And all of those things, it's almost like that sometimes, I don't know if there's the intentional act by mm -hmm. churches to do this, to see, make it so as if women aren't supposed to be theologically robust. Mm -hmm. uh, they're supposed to rely heavily on devotional readings mm -hmm. and women's ministries <laughs> to, to prepare them for marriage. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, your, 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 your housewife duties. Um, yeah. But you have women leading in culture. You know, you have women that are attorneys that are in the leading in the marketplace, that are politicians, that are managers. And then when they come to church, they're almost relegated to one role when they have so many other things that can help the church move forward. So yes. how do you encourage women who want to get deeper into understanding scripture, whether it's theology, apologetics, um, learning Hebrew and Greek and, and yeah. all that stuff. How do you encourage them? Yeah, you know, you have to, if you don't do what God says to do, you will never be satisfied. And I think I'd like to communicate to women that you have to be true to yourself. Um, will there be some conflicts? Yes, I was part of a denomination where women can only be missionaries. That's all you could be is missionary. And I wasn't called to be a missionary, but I was missionary day. And so that was it. Uh, however, and I had a real problem with the title and what, what they said I could do. But it was an interesting thing that happened at that church. That church allowed me, they gave me a limited title, but they allowed me to do everything else that all the other titles do. And so you can definitely do the work of the Lord wherever you are. It may be hard. It may even be oppressive in that situation. You have to be prayerful concerning moving from a den another denomination. Uh, you have to be prayerful concerning... Um, what what your what your angle is because going to school for some people can be an issue in marriages sometimes husbands don't want their wives to go to school they'll come up with a, a lot of reasons sometimes women don't want their husbands to go to school i had a friend of mine and and his wife actually divorced him and then ended up in divorce because he said i'm going to seminary and she was not supportive of that so these can have strong ramifications it'd be very prayerful um, I think you can always read. I think Will Smith said a long time ago before he became a little bit strange to me. Um, he said a long time ago, there's nothing stopping. I think he said it's probably in the early 90s. There's nothing stopping us young black people from going to the library and picking up a book and reading. 
And so there's nothing that stops us from reading, from getting, uh, from auditing a class, from um, listening to lectures, from doing um, the best you can in the area you're at until God uh, puts you in a situation where you can have the fun to be who you are. My pastor, uh, she's a senior pastor, and, uh, and she serves under our bishop, who's her husband. But our denomination does not ordain women to be bishops, but she very well could be a bishop. She very well. She has the anointing and the, and the education, and, and the, um, she just has everything she needs to do that. But the denomination says no. So what does she do? She ends up teaching bishops. <laughs> you know, she ends up instructing them and, um, and just waiting on for the Lord to open up the right door at the right time for that part of her calling, I believe, to be fulfilled. Awesome. Um, so for, for those who are looking for resources as, as it relates to the Old Testament, um, what, what resources would you recommend? Um, because okay, so I give a good plug for Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, <laughs> <laughs> where I'm a professor at. Um, I would recommend uh, depends on what they want to do. If they want to, if they just want to read the Bible, you always need a good study Bible, but not one, right? So you want to get a good study Bible. ESV is a good study Bible um, and good commentaries. You'll notice when you're reading um, the text, you might have other questions. When I started studying the Bible, I just got a Thompson Chain reference. Um, Bible. And that sort of followed the scriptures along the way. So I saw building scriptures, a Bible dictionary. There's nothing that stops you from taking notes and learning more. And so I think we limit ourselves by saying that other people put limits on us. Well, yeah, they put limits on you. But do you have to adhere to those limits? No, you don't. And there's a way that you can do that without without being in rebellion against the house of God and (laughs) those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it depends on what they want to study. I would have to know, you know, what, what is it? You know, you need a good Bible. You need good commentaries, things like that. Mm-hmm. What about the, the reliability of the Old Testament? Yeah, um, Kaiser writes a, a great book on the Old Testament reliability. He writes a good book on, uh, I think it's called, um, there's some disputed texts. It, you have to do Walter Kaiser, and he has the, their disputed text. So you can look at, there's a whole thing about, cases that are disputed and, and how people sort of look at women and how people look at leadership. And so you can look at troubling texts and see what um, a good evangelist um, has to say about it. one trustworthy Old Testament scholar. Um, books, any book by Dr. Douglas Stewart is a great book. Um, anything on kingdom building, um, sort of building up the temple of the house of God, God at Sinai by Jeffrey Niehaus is awesome. Um, if you really, really, really want to get deep, um, it's, it's James Hoffmeyer writes a book called Israel in, e- in Egypt. And um, it's really technical. I had to read it four times to understand it. Um, but if you, if you really want to get deep, I would, I would pick up a Hoffmeyer book. Awesome. If, if, would those include like the formation of the Old Testament as well? Yeah, well, the formation of the Old Testament is Hill and Walton's survey of the Old Testament book, the most recent one. Now, they had one that came out, the third edition, that's the third edition, um, Hill and Walton's um, Old Testament Survey or Survey of the Old Testament. Either way, excellent book. Um, I remember one time my PhD supervisor had the book in his office. He had uh, edition number two, and he wouldn't let me borrow it. You know, he wouldn't let me have it. And I said, you have so many books. He says, no, I will not let you have it. I said, let me borrow it. So I, I borrowed it for about six years. And so uh, I need to get it back to <laughs> 
<laughs> I need to get it back to him. But Hill and Walton came out with a new one. And in that, they have a wonderful essay on formation of the Old Testament. I would encourage any student to read it. It talks about how the text has been has developed over time, ways that um, people have disputed the text. Also, um, Grasping God's Words by Hayes, Duvall and Hayes. They talk about the transmission of the Bible over time and how different translations are some translations are better than others for different reasons. So I would suggest starting with Hill and Walton. There's an essay called Formation of the Old Testament. And Duvall and Hayes has a great book on grasping God's word. Awesome. I have one more question. And this is it's something that we've noticed over just interacting with people here at the G3 Project, that people have a difficult time um, with interpreting the New Testament, the Old Testament in light of the New. Um, mm-hmm. And... What would be some helpful tips? Um, I know one one article, I can't remember who it was by, but it was on principalism mm. um, in the Old Testament that was really helpful um, to me. But what mm. are some strategies? Because you look at the law and then the New Testament and people are struggling with what I should obey and what I should omit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what things, you know, if, you know, there's some challenges uh, for for many people, because it, it kind of many people go into error trying to impose Old Testament laws uh, in this day. Um, so, what what helpful tips would you leave? Well, with that's a that's a loaded question because it's the question really comes for a lot of people is how much of the Old Testament do I have to do now? That's mm-hmm. that's you know, and so um, the the oldest the the new is going to fulfill the old. So you're going to if what I would suggest we're talking about say adultery. And we see the grace that God gives to uh, the woman caught in adultery in, in the New Testament. But we also see grace in the Old Testament with David and Bathsheba. And so even though the law says that they should die for committing adultery, we see grace superseding it. So I would look at the law. If I look at the law in the Old Testament, if I see a connecting application in the New Testament, that's what you want to do. Say, okay, it's the Old Testament says you should die. But is that... In every situation, do we see mercy? Do we see grace? Um, there's some things that don't change from old to new. You know, you should love your neighbor. That doesn't change. Love only one God, um, so, and that is the Lord God. So there's some things that don't change, but some of these other laws about, you know, cutting up a goat and all that, we, we know we can't do that anymore. Someone would be in big trouble. I would suggest people read a book, start reading a book called, um, by Fee and Stewart, called How to, How to Read the Bible Book by Book. And also, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, written by both Fee and Stewart. Um, Fee does the New Testament. Stewart does the Old Testament. Some people may say, oh, that's very uh, generic. It's very simple. But it's the simple things that we overlook. It's, you know, they're going to tell you what to look for. And then you'll know how to apply it when you get to the New Testament. Okay, what is adultery? What about murder? What about racism? You know, how do we sort of work with that? Blue lives matter, black lives matter, all lives matter. How do we sort of get all that out of the Old Testament? How is it fulfilled in the New Testament? All those questions can be dealt with if you understand how each, the theme of each book. Like, for instance, Jonah. Jonah's not about a person running away from God. The issue about Jonah is that his heart's not right. At the end of the story, he does not feel like others have the right to God. And the highlight of the story is that God is saying, yes, others have a right to my love, too. That's the highlight. Not that he runs from God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's helpful, even the, the grace point you pointed out, because I think people relegate grace 
only to the New Testament and missed that God is showing grace throughout uh, throughout all the Old Testament mm -hmm. uh, from Genesis to Malachi. So, you know, there's God is, is always being gracious to his people. Even in the law, there's grace. Yes, yes. Think about like the city of refuge is yeah. a picture of of gr God's grace. <laughs> it's, it starts way back before then. I mean, you, you know, just Cain and Abel. You know, it, God is merciful to Cain. Cain should have died. God is merciful. He allows him to live. That's so helpful. That's so helpful to us. Thank you so much, Professor oh, no Day. Yes. For those who want to get in contact with you, is there a website or a social media handle? Or just, there's not that? many Quiniquia days out there. So if you just do uh, Quiniquia uh, at uh, Quiniquia Day on Facebook, I'm there. I'll, I'll respond to your request. Or QDay at gordonconwell.edu. Uh, that's where I teach. But if you put Quiniquia on the internet, Q-U-O-N-E-K-U-I-A, you'll see me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. On Twitter, it's Keeping It Real 19. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Professor Day. This has been yeah. a rich time. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com or you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play by searching the Jude 3 Project. You can also get better equipped with our Bible engagement app by searching the App Store, Google Play or Apple App Store by searching the Jude 3 Project, and that will help you better engage scripture on a daily basis. If you would like to donate to the Jude 3 Project, go to jude3project.com and hit the Donate tab. In addition, you can follow us on, in, on social media by searching at Jude 3 Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, here at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.